Welcome to Work and Flight, the podcast of Casey and G. Brooks, Smith & Profit. Here we discuss employment news and provide practical tips that you can use at your company or in your practice. I'm your host, Susan Basford-Wilson. I am joined today by my co-host and partner, Sherry Silverman. Thanks for joining me, Sherry. It's a pleasure, although to be honest, I didn't have anywhere else to be today. Go figure. Well, as you know, we recorded the first episode of our planned two-part series on data privacy legislation a while back. In fact, before we recorded our COVID-19 episodes, and we have both, I know, been answering so many coronavirus questions and assisting so many of our clients in these strange times that it almost feels weird to talk about something non-coronavirus to talk about data privacy again now. I know. I mean, we could discuss the details of the FFCRA or the CARES Act instead, but I think that data privacy is a topic that we've heard a lot of questions on recently, particularly as it relates to the huge number of people who are currently teleworking due to the COVID-19 crisis. I agree. And so I vote that we veer a little bit from our planned mini series and talk a bit more about data security issues as it relates to teleworking. We can still cover some data privacy legislation as we promised and also, you know, cover some other interesting things. I like it. Let's do it. So where do you want to start? Let's start with data privacy legislation. Have you ever heard of the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act? Indeed, I have. Um, So I know at a high level, it protects the capture and use of a person's unique physical characteristics, right? That is correct. BIPA restricts how private entities may collect, use, store, disclose, and destroy biometric information. So how is biometric information defined? The basic idea is whether there is a set of measurements of a physical component, like an eye, a finger, your voice, your hand, or your face, which can be used to identify a specific person. And you can certainly see the public policy interest there. If someone takes your fingerprint without your knowledge and is free to use it without your consent, then of course that could create some issues. Yeah, I totally see that, but this isn't really a new piece of legislation, is it? No, it's not. It was actually enacted in 2008, but it has gotten much more popular in recent years as more and more high profile class action lawsuits have been filed under it. For example, some of the titans of technology have gotten hit with these suits, Google and Facebook, for example, for their collection and analysis of photographs to create facial templates without the permission of the people in those photographs. Got it. Yeah. So in the employment context, what should employers be wary of under BIPA? Well, a couple of things. First, this statute requires that before an employer can collect, store, or use biometric identifiers or information, it must A, notify every employee in writing that it is collecting a biometric identifier or information, including the specific reason for the collection or the storage, how they're going to use the information and how long they're going to retain it. 
the employer also must obtain the employee's written release for this collection of biometric data and develop a publicly available written policy that includes a retention schedule and guidelines for permanently destroying this collected biometric information. So this is something where employers need to have really a few different pieces of documentation. If a company is collecting anything that could arguably be construed as biometric information, then yes, absolutely. Employers need a written notice, a written consent form, and a publicly available policy. Okay, so in the employment context, how do you usually see biometric information being collected or used? So I'm going to tell you that I am eagerly waiting for the client who performs uh, retina scans in order to access a secure storage room. It may be that I've watched a little too much NCIS or James Bond over the years, but I really want to see that technology used in person. More commonly, however, I have seen it when employees clock in and out via uh, fingerprint scanners. Okay, so question is, is that biometric information? Well, it really depends on what information specifically is being collected. I have talked to several different vendors for this technology who will argue that their timekeeping systems don't fall within the scope of BIPA because the information that they're collecting would not and could not be used to identify someone. As in, the vendors will argue they're gathering 10 tiny random points from your fingerprint. And so those 10 points could not be used to identify an employee in any other context. However, if you are not totally and completely sure that you are not collecting biometric information, then I invite you to look deeply into that subject right now. Um, and of course, as you can imagine, this can be a hotly litigated point. I'm sure. Okay. But let, let's talk about whether or not BIPA creates a private right of action. So in other words, can an individual or a class bring a lawsuit under it rather than the statute being enforced by, say, for example, the state attorney general's office? It does, and that's what makes it an unusual and trailblazing statute, if you will. BIPA provides that an aggrieved person can file suit and recover actual damages or $1,000 or $5,000 in liquidated damages for each violation and attorney's fees. And the individual can also seek a court order directing the entity to comply with law. Ouch, okay. Um, and you've told me before, you told me before the show the, about the Illinois Supreme Court's decision about who's quote unquote aggrieved and it's pretty broad definition, right? It is. I don't want to bore everyone else with the procedural history and all the details, but basically in 2019, the Illinois Supreme Court said that a technical violation of the statute results in harm such that a person can bring suit without showing of any additional consequences or actual damages. Okay, let's be honest. You really enjoy talking about BIPA, don't you? <laughs> I do. I have told you that I pay attention to this statute in particular because I practice in Illinois regularly and I've, I've spoken to a number of companies about it. It is, I think, 
fascinating stuff. Okay, fascinating, daunting, potato, potato. <laughs> hey, I always say that if you don't know everything about the digital workplace yourself, then build a team. Go get your legal people, your HR people, and your tech people all together to discuss and solve this type of issue. Teamwork makes the dream work, as I tell my children regularly. <laughs> Agreed. All right. So we'll call you with all of our questions. Um, but I think that's a good overview of the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, which I know we've been calling BIPA. Do you want to delve into data security and data privacy issues for our listeners who are perhaps new to teleworking or at least new to having a huge portion of their workplaces teleworking all at the same time? I would love to. Let me start out by saying that the best solution for your company isn't necessarily going to be the same as the solution for someone else. There are a lot of fact-specific factors when you talk about data security. Things like the size of your company, where you operate, the type of business you're in, whether you're subject to industry-specific data protection laws, and the sophistication of your tech operations, just to name a few things. However, there are going to be some measures that will be a good idea for pretty much anyone. Okay, so tell us what those are. Well, how about training your employees about phishing? and why it's a bad idea to click on links or attachments from an unknown sender. I have heard that something like 80% of malware is planted through phishing. So even if, if you have an awesome state-of-the-art system, you can still get into trouble if one employee clicks on the wrong thing. Yeah, and I know in general we love to talk about how important it is to train your workplace, so this really fits right in. Absolutely. And while you're at it, tell your employees that they can't use the word password in their password or the name of their dog, their cat, or their kid. They need to change their passwords regularly, like go every three or six months, and writing down your new password on a sticky note that you place under your keyboard so you don't forget what it is, is not a secure practice. <laughs> You're setting the bar high. Yes, yes I am. I'm very demanding like that. Okay, so do you have any guidance about how employees should be connecting to the company system while they're teleworking? I could talk about this one for a while. Let's start with prohibiting the use of public Wi-Fi. Employees should only use secure networks for work uses and doing so via a VPN would be even better. I'm a big fan of multi-factor authentication so that if an employee's password is hacked, then your company system, your data is still protected. And you'd also recommend that, you know, when possible, employees should not have access to every piece of data that a company possesses, right? Yes, absolutely. These types of reasonable security measures are, are really helpful in a number of ways, including preventing hacks and protecting trade secret or confidential data. Got it. Any other tips? Of course. Uh, we actually have two different articles on Constangi's Coronavirus Resource Center that delve into these topics in more depth. But 
I do think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk today about timekeeping while working remotely. Oh, I agree. This is this is a big one. So I know one of the most popular um, types of claims under the Fair Labor Standards Act is that you know I wasn't paid for all the hours I worked. So particularly when employees are teleworking, it's really important to ensure they're properly recording all hours worked, even if those are slightly odd, unusual late hours or early hours based on childcare or other coronavirus issues. Absolutely, employees need to be paid properly for all hours worked or teleworked. And for those of you with one or more children at home right now who, let's say hypothetically, burst into the room while you're on a conference call or trying to record a podcast, I see you and I feel your pain. Okay, I know that you pulled that <laughs> last example totally out of thin air because neither one of us had children walk into the room during our second coronavirus podcast, even after they were... Uh, you know, caution not to do so. Nope, that, that didn't happen. Uh, exactly. My children, including the baby, are obviously perfectly behaved at all times and listen carefully to everything that their parents tell them. <laughs> <sighs> Definitely. Okay. Well, I think that counts as our funny ending anecdote, don't you? I think so. All right. So let's wrap this one up then. It was great talking to you today, Susan. Thank you as always for joining me, Sherry. Of course, you're welcome. Before we sign off, I have one request for our listeners. As I've said before, we are a new podcast and it would be great if those of you listening would follow us, rate us, and especially leave a written review about the podcast on iTunes, Blueberry, or wherever else you get your podcasts so that other people who are interested in employment law can find us. Thank you, and we hope you tune in soon.